0: Thanks for listening to the Gray Ave Podcast. We meet inspiring people from around the world and learn from them. From entrepreneurship, health, travel, lifestyle, and more. We are also on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Rate and write us a review. You can also download each episode on www.grayjabessi.com. Enjoy the show.
1: Hey, what's up, guys? My name is Gray, and this is another episode of the Gray F Podcast. And this marks as episode number 42. And uh, on the podcast, usually we meet and chat to, you know, very interesting people and try to learn from them. We try to find out, like, uh, the tools they use, what makes them who who they are, what inspires them, what drives them, and, like, what kind of formulas do they have to be at the level where they're operational and they're making progress in life. So we try to apply those to our own lives uh, for ourselves to become better. So this podcast is a little different. This is um, a new idea that I just came up with because I was going through something last week. So I went back to a, a certain tool that I used to get back to my normal self, that I'm like, you know, always driven and up to do something, going for the things that I really want to do. So I felt that I should share with you guys. So I think it marks as a new beginning of some kind of different episode series that I will be calling them uh, the Unicorn Files. So this marks as the Unicorn Files one. It's just going to be uh, the podcast still, but it's like, it's going to be a, div- a different different Uh, variation or like we're gonna I'm gonna be doing it in a different formula than what I usually do with 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 the rest of the podcast so on this one what I did is I I I listened to a lot of uh, podcasts and motivational videos or it's not motivation videos specifically always but like A lot of interviews by the uh, by people that I look up to, you know, like all the great entrepreneurs, just like great people generally, uh, which also inspired the idea of me starting my own podcast to meet other great people that I can actually learn from and connect with. So what I did is I just when I'm listening to this podcast or interviews, I like to mark and keep the uh, the moments that I really like the most, or inspires me, or like resonates with me a lot. And then I create a small audio file that I can like eventually come back to and listen to, and it really reminds me of all the things that I need to know to keep me, myself at a level that I'm always like um, always driven and motivated to do the things that I want. So what happened was that recently I uh, you know I was like uh, I was doing a lot of things which is really good uh, progress, and then I traveled for a bit, and when I got back to Cape Town after that, that trip. Sorry. Um, I just, like, I lost motivation. I was just, like, down for no reason. I just didn't know, like, what to do. And it's like I would come into an office and, you know, come to my office and feel like I was sick. I didn't want to do anything, you know. Like, I I would try to push myself. Then uh, I just remembered, like, uh, I always say, like, when I'm going through something, I always say, like, okay, what keeps me to... Uh, Like, what are the things that I I do right that gets me uh, up and driven all the time? Like, I should do the same things again. Like, what should I do? Then I remember that, oh, I kept a uh, a a, a video file, uh, uh, an audio file where I just recorded all these uh, interviews with great people that reminds me of certain things. And then it gets me back to, uh, you know, what I do and kicking ass all the time. So I just felt like, oh, this is great. I can share it with the guys uh, or my subscribers on the podcast, which I think it's going to help you as well. So if you like the idea of what I'm um, I'm doing with this, I uh, r- really appreciate it. If you let me know through the comments or you can drop me an email or if you find this really helpful and you're new to the Grave podcast, pre- please subscribe to the podcast and then uh, you know that helps to the podcast a lot. So the list of the people that I've included on this episode are um, Chris Saka, Will Smith, Steve Jobs, Larry Ellison, Mark Cuban, Beyonce, Aliko Dangote, Steve Distante who was on this podcast as well on one of the episodes. Uh, and Peter Thiel, and finally Gary V. So what I'm uh, before the their uh part of the Podcast start. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a description of who they are because these are like some of the great people right now in the world who are doing a very good difference in whatever aspect of uh, life that they're working in. So first things first, we're gonna start with Chris Sacca, who is one of my favorite people out there. To be honest, Chris is actually marked as the best uh, venture capitalist at the moment, moment in Silicon Valley in the technology side of things. So I'm just going to give you a little description. He's a venture investor, a company advisor, an entrepreneur, as well as a former lawyer. Uh, he is a proprietor to of, a proprietor of Lowercase Capital, a venture capital fund in the United States. He invested in seed and early stage technology companies like Twitter, Uber, Instagram, Tilio, uh, Twilio, Kickstarter. I mean, Chris is an amazing guy. Like, if you listen to this, I'm sure you'll be... Uh, You'll be looking him out and just like to check more of of this stuff. He's like a very inspiring guy, very smart. He has also worked uh, from Google. Uh, He has also worked at Google. So uh, in the snippet that I'm about to play for you, you'll be able to tell uh, his story a little bit from Google and what he learned from there. So here we go. It's Chris Sucker.
2: You are unforgivingly who you are. Have you always been like that? No. No. What, what happened?
0: Like, when I was in college... What were
2: you like? Like, were you ever insecure?
0: I, I, I still am insecure. Like, that, I mean, there's probably people snickering backstage right now at that question. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I When I was in college, I didn't want to come out as a progressive because I would eliminate, like, half of my future employers and in Washington, D.C. I was like, look, I got to look neutral here so I can get a job someday. Um, I I found progressively, you know, and some of these lessons were foisted upon me. I mean, I mentioned earlier, so not to repeat a story, but as a Google, I am uh, working on this team and this wireless stuff. It was an incredible amount of responsibility. Larry had given me, Larry Page had given me billions of dollars to go take on the wireless carriers. And I was in over my head. I, I didn't have a background on this stuff and I was learning fast and I was pretty good at it. But one day a decision came up and I didn't know what to do. And my work partner wrote in the notes... Chris doesn't know what to do about this. And at Google, the notes are published to the whole company. Hmm. So I see the notes get published, and I'm like, what would you do? You just ruined my career. Everyone's going to know, like, I'm smoking mirrors. And I thought it was over for me. And then the next meeting, some new engineers who didn't report to me and Larry Page himself showed up with ideas on what to do to solve this problem. And I was like, oh, my God, I just became more powerful. I now have influence. I have more bodies working for me who don't even report Hmm. to me. And it was, I mean, I, I wish I could say I was like, it was an enlightened choice I'd made. It was totally foisted upon me and I was angry about it, but it worked. <laughs> and so along the way, I realized that the candor, the authenticity, the vulnerability is what actually attracts the other people to you. It's, it's the insecurity roots you in this place of showing you're impervious, that you've got all the answers. But what that does is it renders everyone around you helpless. They're just like, I'm not valued here. Right. And so when you start to admit, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some help. Then people start attracting you and and working with you. I mean, I, I have a principle that I guide my life by and I try and teach this to our entrepreneurs called bold humility. There are all these business books that say like, Hey, be humble, be humble, be humble. But humility is not a natural state for a kick-ass human being. Right? Like if you're here, you probably kick a lot of ass at something. You were probably the best at something. You have ambition. You're a risk taker. You have learned to to hack. You're a good talker. You have, through the gift of gab, wound your way into an amazing situation. You hustle, hustle, hustle. And I feel like it's unnatural to apologize for that. But where we get into trouble is when we feel like we have to extend that to the shit we don't know. And we have to feel like we've got it all covered. And so I think I have had such a great, like, I I don't know if I would have learn this authenticity if I didn't have Twitter. And the replies being like, that means a lot to me, go for it, you know? And, and that's why I kind of live a lot of my life in public as I feel I draw a lot of strength and reassurance from, from uh, the public being like, look, that moment of f- failure meant a lot to me and I identify with it. It's time for step three. Step three is to go on offense. Now what do I mean by going on offense? Well. You guys all know sports, this is the Big Ten, you can't avoid sports here. You know what it means to be on offense. Offense is calling plays, managing the clock, keeping the other team on defense, reacting to you. Now take that term and apply it to the rest of your life. Let's take for example, email. Is your email inbox offense? Is that playing offense? No, no, no. Inbox stuff is just defense the whole way. Imagine if you took your to-do list and you posted it on the door of your dorm room with a little pencil there and invited the entire world to come and add anything they wanted to your to-do list. Well, that's what your inbox is. It's a publicly posted to-do list where it's up to everybody else to impose their whim on you. And even worse, what happens is we get up and it's the very first thing we check. And so we get in there and we start doing stuff for all these other people and yet, along the way, we've forgotten what we wanted to accomplish for ourselves. We haven't done the things that we know are important for us and for our goals, and so that stops now. It's time to close your email and write out your to-do list. I don't just mean your to-do list for work, I mean the big to-do list for your life. What do you want to get done? I'm a big believer in the liberal arts education. I think it's overrated, or it's underrated, I mean, in that the computer science stuff is overrated. It's great, technical skills are amazing, but, What has happened, as I referred to earlier, is we've just, all the storytellers are kind of gone. And the actual understanding of our users is gone. We've lost all that sensitivity. And yet I feel like that sensitivity comes first from really knowing yourself. So I encourage people to take classes, not just in art and music, but in death and dying, dying and philosophy and theology. These things that you'll never make money on directly. But I think one of the most important things you can do is be interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I I only really wanna work with people who've not only had those crappy jobs I talked about, but are also interesting. Mm -hmm. They have stories, there's some meat to them. There's some flesh, there's something really compelling. That's who you wanna be with if you're gonna spend night and day building something together. That's who you wanna travel with, these people with these perspectives and Mm -hmm. these stories. And so, an interestingness is not something that I think you're born with, I think it's achieved by vulnerability, by adventure, by all these things. And so I really emphasize interestingness. I think you can get it from, from studying, from reading, from putting yourself in uncomfortable positions. Uh, maybe more Americans should just hang out naked in saunas. That could make Bingo. them more interesting. Uh, but, but traveling abroad, going to Ethiopia, and helping dig wells, uh, it, that kind of stuff, I think, builds a much more impressive character.
1: That was Chris Saka. I hope that you found the content really helpful. Uh, he, As you could hear, he's a very insightful guy, very smart. And I'm just going to give you a little story uh, on what I picked up from there. Um, I, I, I listened to that interview uh, like a couple of years ago, and then uh, what really stood out to me the most was uh, about defense and offense. So <laughs> since I listened to that interview and uh, about the uh, offense and defense thing, i stopped checking my uh, i switched off uh the sounds of my cell phone like all the notification sounds so that when i get messages i really don't uh i don't hear it it's like i check my my phone it's like all these social media apps when i want to not when it rings just because somebody texts me then it means i have to go and check so since then i became more productive i think it's a very good thing or a very good habit to practice um especially considering These days when, you know, we are engulfed in the technology bubble and uh, in terms of like uh, um, consumption, we have too much of it. And then, you know, you you get messages all the time and it's really hard to concentrate. So what I did, I just turned off all the notification sounds. It's like you send me a WhatsApp. I don't get it. I don't hear any sound or vibrate. My phone doesn't do anything. Uh, You send me my Facebook, whatever the heck that is, it's it's like I have to consciously think of checking my phone to see messages that are really important and then I reply to those and then the the rest I can actually reply to them whenever I want to. Uh, So if you think that's uh, for you, you can give it a try. If you think social media takes a lot of time, as well whether it's YouTube, whatever the heck um, takes most of your time, social media used to be a problem for myself. Now, not anymore. Anyway, so let's move on to the next. Uh, It's Will Smith. Will Smith is an American actor, producer, rapper and songwriter. In April 2007, Newsweek called him the most powerful actor in Hollywood. Smith has been nominated for five Golden Globe Awards and two Academy Awards and has won four Grammy Awards. So, I'm sure you're familiar with Will Smith. He's a very talented actor and has worked on a lot of films, obviously. Anyway, let's get into Will Smith.
3: Greatness is not this uh, wonderful esoteric elusive uh godlike feature that only the special among us are will ever taste. You know, it's something that truly exists in all of us. It's very simple. This is what I believe. And I'm willing to die for it. Yeah. Period. It's that simple. I know who I am. and I know what I believe. I know who I am. I know who what I believe. That's all I need to know. that's all I need, need to, to know. know. So from there, you do what you need to do.
4: Yeah.
3: You know. And I think what happens is we make this situation more complex than it has to because be. Because
4: we're looking for complexity. It's got to be Absolutely. something complex to
3: understand. It right can't be that easy. You no. Know. We didn't grow up uh... with the sense that where we were was where we were going to be you know we grew up with the sense that where we were almost didn't matter because
5: we were becoming
3: we were becoming something greater the separation of talent and skill is one of the the, the the greatest misunderstood concepts for people who are trying to excel, who have dreams that want to do things. Talent you have naturally. Skill is only developed by hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. I've, n- I've never really viewed myself as particularly talented. Where I excel is ridiculous. Sickening work ethic. You know, while the other guy's sleeping, I'm working. While the other guy's eating, I'm working. There's no easy way around it. No matter how talented you are, your talent is going to fail you if you're not skilled. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't study, if you don't work uh really hard and dedicate yourself to being better every single day, mm-hmm. you'll never be able to communicate with with people with your artistry the, the way that you want. So the only thing that I see that is distinctly different about me is I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill you might have more talent than me you might be smarter than me but if we get on the treadmill together (laughs) right there's two things you're getting off first or I'm going to die it's really that simple everybody who became an actor Mm -hmm. became an actor because they
0: got something to say
3: uh, that, that's very interesting. I never, uh, never intellectualized it that way, but that, that is very true. For me, it, it has been the to be that guy that does what people say can't be done, you know. And I think it started with uh, trying to please my mother and trying to please my grandmother, and they always wanted higher for me They always wanted more for me and it got to the point that I wanted to be something I wanted to be somebody and it, it made me uh, choose certain roles it, it made me turn down certain roles um, there is more, more than an image that I want to project I want to be the person that is the first person there and the last person to leave that's who I want to be because I think that the, the road to success is through commitment and through the strength to drive through that commitment when it gets hard. And it is going to get hard and you're going to want to quit sometimes, but it'll be colored by who you are and more who you want to be. I definitely found that uh, wanting to be an actor stems from wanting to be Somebody.
1: And that was Will Smith. I hope you found it helpful and quickly move on to Steve Jobs, one of my favorite people, probably yours too. He was an American entrepreneur, businessman, inventor, and industrial designer. He was the co-founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of Apple Inc. Apple, the Apple you know, the company, yeah. CEO and majority shareholder of Pixar. A member of the Walt Disney Company's board of directors following its acquisition of Pixar, and founder, chairman, and CEO of Next. Jobs and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak are widely recognized as pioneers of the microcomputer revolution of the 1970s and 1980s. Here we go and what we can learn from Steve Jobs. By the way, this very snippet is my favorite uh, uh, Steve Jobs' speech ever for me it's like i have it on my phone i have it like i listen to it eventually just to remind myself uh, of a few things and keep me on the right track i also listen to it uh, in times when people tell me to grow up or something
6: like that the thing i would say is when you grow up you tend to get told that the world is the way it is and you're Your life is just to live your life inside the world, try not to bash into the walls too much, Uh, uh, try to have a nice family life, Uh, have fun, save a little money. Um, But life, that's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can you can build your own things that other people can use. And the minute that you understand that you can poke life, and actually something will you know if you push in, something will pop out the other side. That you can you can change it. You can mold it. Um, that's maybe the most important thing: is to shake off this uh, th- this uh, erroneous notion that life is is there, and you're just going to live in it versus embrace it, change it, improve it, make your mark upon it. Um, I I think that's very important. And however you learn that, once you learn it, uh, you'll want to change life and make it better because it's kind of messed up in a lot of ways. Um, Once you learn that, you'll never be the same again.
1: And that was jobs and next weekly to his best friend when he was alive Larry Ellison who is my one of my favorite people right now I love this guy he's very um, you know introspective and interesting and he have fun I like his definition of what it means to work and have fun but anyway uh, this is Larry Ellison is an American businessman entrepreneur and philanthropist who is co-founder of Oracle Corporation and was CEO from its founding until September 2014. He's the executive uh, chairman and chief technology officer at Oracle. As of February 2017 he was listed by Forbes magazine as the 5th uh, worthiest person in America and he's obviously a billionaire by the way and the seventh wealthiest in the world with a fortune of 55 billion dollars. So here we go with my man, Larry.
4: Think things out for yourself. Come to your own judgments. Don't simply conform uh, to conventional ways of thinking, conventional ways of dressing, conventional ways of acting, that a lot of, this, uh, a lot of things are, are based on fashion. Even morality at times is based on fashion. It was once, fat. you know, slavery was once not considered not to be immoral. Uh, you, know, people are, you know, people are shocked that the, uh, the ancient Greeks had slaves, that, that, that we had slavery in this country as recently as, you know, 130, 140 years ago. So there are more moral facts. You have to really go back to first principles and think things out for yourself, whether they're scientific principles or moral principles or business ideas or product ideas. You have to think things out for yourself. I believed until I was 12 years old that, uh, that I was not adopted. I had no idea that I was adopted within, within my own family. Uh, so again, I, I don't attribute very much of my life, my personality to my adoption. I, I do attribute it, uh, an awful lot to my relationship with my father uh, who was uh, a Russian immigrant, came, uh, came here, was very, very poor, uh, dearly loved this country as only an immigrant can. Uh, loved our government as only an immigrant can. He was a, he was a pilot uh, in uh, World War II, a uh, bomber pilot. He, um, he really had the philosophy of my country, right or wrong. He never questioned the government's policies, never questioned authority, and didn't really want me to question authority. Uh, I had some teachers when I was very, very young that I, that I thought were telling me things that weren't true. And when I tried to ask questions, they basically wanted me to respond, basically you know, parrot back what they said. They really weren't interested in a discourse with a child or a debate with a the child. They said this was true, and you are smart if you can repeat back to me exactly what I said to you. And I had a real problem with that as well. So I, I had very strong authoritarian figures, both in school uh, and at home, which served as wonderful examples of how not to be. Suddenly we'd hit a wall, we were, we'd reach a billion dollars in revenue and we were having serious management problems all over the place. And the people who were running the company, the billion dollar company, were the same people that had run the company when we were a $50 million company, one twentieth the size. And I had, an, had a, an incredible sense of loyalty to those, to those people who would worked with me to build Oracle. And it was a very painful realization in 1990 that I was going to have to change the management team, that the, that the company had outgrown the management, uh, that people who are good at running a $50 million company are not necessarily, those are the same skills. Not, they're just different, not one is better or worse, they just entirely different skill set in running a $50 million company than a, than a billion dollar company. And uh, both skill sets are rare and precious, but we needed a different group of managers. And virtually. The entire management team had to be replaced and that means i had to ask people who i'd worked with for a decade to leave i had to fire people uh and that was the most difficult the most the most difficult thing i had to do in in business asking the you know a bunch of people to leave oracle An awful lot of kids i think we born slaves to reason and it's really reason that's beaten out of us uh through a, 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 pro, you know, a process of trying to please our teachers. We, I, I think we have two fundamental drives in our life. We want to, we want to be loved and we want to please people, and we, and we know how to think, we know how to reason. And these are often quite at odds, because we're asked to believe a certain things, you know, believe certain you know certain things are correct. You know, that we have to wear, wear our hair a certain length and dress a certain way, and, and if you want to be loved, you want to be accepted by your peers, you want to be accepted by your family, there's a of t- tension there, and, and sometimes we were, trying, we're pleasing our parents, sometimes we're pleasing our peers but uh, we're often just conforming to some fashion, figuring out what the group wants from us and then conforming to that because we want to be accepted and loved. There's this other fundamental drive inside of us where there's often tension between the two and that is the ability to think, the ability to reason, the ability to come to conclusions as to what works and what doesn't, what's fair and what's not fair, what's right and what's wrong. And when fashion and the pursuit of love Gets, you know, uh, is in conflict with reason too often. Fashion the pursuit of love wins. In my case, it didn't.
1: That was Larry, and next is Mark Cuban. He's an American businessman, investor, author, television personality, and philanthropist. He's the owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks, co owner of 2929. 2929- Entertainment and chairman of the IXTV. He is also the main, uh, the main Shark investors on the ABC reality television series Shark Tank, which is a show that I really enjoy. In 2011, Cuban wrote a book, How to Win at the Sport of Business, which I recommend that you read. It's a very small book, but very insightful, in which he chronicles his life experiences in business and sports and uh, he is also an investor in um, Netflix, just to point that out. You know, he's like one of the coolest billionaires out there, very popular and very outspoken. I love, I love Mark Cuban, to be honest, he's a very smart guy. So here we go from the lessons of Mark Cuban.
7: You know, personally, I think every time is a perfect time to start a business. There's no bad times. If, if you do the work, if you do the preparation, you'll know when it's time. And it doesn't mean that it won't be a little bit scary, but you know, it, it's, you'll know. And you don't have to quit the daytime job if you, if you don't feel all that comfortable and you can give it a run at night. Um, but whatever works for you now with the internet, um, you've got all the choices in the world and you can just go out there and do your own thing and, and you know, set up a business part-time. The passion I've always had for business and being an entrepreneur that trans, that transfers into the Mavs, I, I've always been passionate. Some people thought, you know, it's a, it's more OCD than anything else, which I think is a, a great trait for an entrepreneur. Um, when I you know I mentioned the stamp business, I would stay up till three, four in the morning, even though I had to get up and go to school, and read Lynn's Stamp News and Scott Stamp Journals and have them all memorized and and use that to give myself an edge. Um, even when I was in college. Um, I'd be in, li- in the library reading business books and just looking for business biographies and just reading all I could about business. Um, when I had Micro Solutions, and you know I started with no money, you know I I'd pull all nighters in-, in front of borrowed computers, teaching myself software and, and how to program. Just. To go after it. I mean, the thing about being an entrepreneur is this—it's just all to you. You know, a lot of people like to make excuses. I don't have connections. I don't have money. I don't have this. But, you know, if if you find something that you like to do or love to do, be great at it, and see if you can turn it into a business. In worst case, you're going to have fun doing what it is you love to do. In best case, you can turn it into a business. I—I'm just not big on excuses. I just think if you're really, you, everybody has that opportunity to go for it. They just got to do it. One of the things that companies do or startups do. They come up with an idea, they'll Google it, and if they don't see it in the first two pages, they think it's original. You've got to go back, right, because over the past 15 years, there's so many different businesses that have tried and failed. You have to go back and find those and learn from those. So you've got to understand all the implications and you have to learn from history. And so the best advice I can give you on a video before talking to you or emailing with you is that you've got to find out the history of people who have tried your idea. Because there's a 99.99999% chance that your idea has been tried before. That's not a good reason not to start it, because you might be able to outperform them, but you better learn from the history of your idea. Um, Because you know what they say about people who don't learn from history. I've always just really enjoyed just the the competition of business. I think, you know, in in the sports business, I'll talk to, to our players, <clears throat> and it'll be like, well, you guys compete for 48 minutes and you practice a couple hours and you work on your game independently a couple hours, but the ultimate sport is business because you have to compete with everybody and you have to do a 24 by 7 by 365 days a year forever and there's always somebody out there trying to kick your butt. There's always somebody who looks at your business and says, I can do that better. I have a better idea. And you you have to compete with that person. And all the while, you have to make your customers happy, your employees happy. It, it's it's the competitive side of me that, and any entrepreneur that I think that, that has to drive you. And, and I think that carries over into the Mavericks. I, I want to win and, and I want to compete. of small businesses you can start with next to no capital it's more about effort you know small businesses don't fail for lack of capital they fail for lack of brains they fail for lack of effort Mm -hmm. most people just aren't willing to put in the time to work smart i mean they, they they go for it in a lot of cases, but they just don't recognize how much work's involved. And, and, and if you do the preparation, if you know, if you start a business, you better know your, your industry and your company better than anyone in the whole wide world because you're competing. And to think that whoever it is you're competing with is just going to let you come in and take their business, obviously that's naive, and I think most people don't recognize that. If you're going to compete with me and one of my businesses, you better realize that I'm working 24 hours a day to kick your ass one of the big things that all startups do is they lie to themselves over and over and over. Mine's faster. Mine's cheaper. Mine's better. Mine's this. Mine's that. No, it's not. And the reason it's not is because whoever it is you're competing with, it's not like they're ignoring you. It's not like, Oh my goodness, this guy just started on Shopify in the startup competition. He's doing a million dollars this year. Woe is me? I might as well close up the doors what are they doing I'm gonna copy what they're doing and now you've got to stay ahead and so you know you've got to be very careful as an entrepreneur to be brutally honest with yourself um, and those are some of the things that you'll hear from me as a mentor that you know know what you know know what you don't know but you have gotta know your business better than anybody I think the most important is knowing your strengths and weaknesses and knowing what you enjoy doing you know if, if you look at it as a job you've already lost it, it's not going to be your passion and you're going to count the hours. If, if you look at it as, as something you love to do um, and then you know what your strengths are, then you can leverage those strengths in, in your business and in helping others and once you recognize your weaknesses then you can work with people that compliment you. I mean every one of my businesses I've had a partner who's very anal. <laughs> Martin Woodall, Todd Wagner, I mean, incredibly anal people, perfectionists. Because I'm a slob, you know. I'm I'm a big picture. Think about what's around the corner. How is technology going to change things? How can I change, you know, this industry, and you know, making sure that there's somebody there to make to dot the i's, cross the t's, and keep me in the baselines, um, and you know, recognizing my weaknesses is just as important as recognizing my strengths and my core competencies and and you know having a passion to, to do them. You've got to be differentiated and unique. You've got to know what your core competency is and be great at it. I think what people fail to realize is that there's, there's got to be a defining um, feature of your company and you've got to be the best in the world at that. Whatever industry you're in, if you if you don't know more about it than anybody else in the world, whoever those other people are that know more are going to kick your ass. I had a job out of college um, working for a bank for a short period of time, Mellon Bank. And I um, decided to. Well, first, um, it might have been Inc. Magazine. This is way back when, but there was an article about using changing something in how you deduct social, how you save Social Security from employees' paychecks. And li- I, I literally hadn't been working there for three weeks. And so I sent it to the CEO of Mellon Bank, hey, I thought you might be interested in this. Literally, some guy he never heard of, and I got a OPEC back said, thank you. And I'm thinking, okay, you look, my whole job, my whole motive in taking a job working for somebody was to help them become more profitable. That's the way I always looked at it. And then I started a rookies club where I reached out to some executives and all the people who had started at the same time at Mellon Bank. We'd all go out and get a drink and we'd get this executive start. And I didn't like run it through my boss or anything. And so my boss at the time um, calls me in and said, you're doing this, this. I said, yeah, I think he's gonna say, great. He just starts screaming at me and screaming at me, how could you do this? You go everything through me, you work for me. Yeah, so I knew I wasn't destined there. And then um, I, I left and I went down to, um, ended up down in Dallas and got a job working for a company called Your Business Software. And, we were we sold software and, and I didn't know anything about software. I took one computer class at Indiana and kinda cheated to pass. Um, but not that I condone that, but um, <laughs> um <laughs> And so I, I had a customer, and I, I taught. I'd stay up all night, teach, reading. I figured, you know, computers were new, and technology was new, um, this technology was new. So no one had a head start on me because it was changing so rapidly, like it is today. That if I just put in the time, I can learn as much as anybody else. And so I taught myself. I'd stay up late reading software manuals. Um, Taught myself different little simple programming languages and kept on getting bigger and bigger and better and better. But it was at a retail store, and one of my responsibilities was to come in, sweep the floor, wipe down the windows, and open the store. And I had a customer who wanted me to come out there and close the deal, and it was a $15,000 deal, $1,500 commission to me. Told my boss, he said, No, you need to be there to open the store. And I made the executive decision that I was going to go get the check because. You know, I was living six guys in a three-bedroom apartment sleeping on the floor, and this check meant I could, like, not use the same Holiday Inn towels with holes in them that I'd stolen, you know. Um, But anyway, so I went and picked up the check, thinking when I came back and gave the check to my boss, all would be forgiven, and, you know, the sales cures all. Fired me. Fired me. And so those back-to-back experiences confirmed what I already knew, that that I was a shitty-ass employee, and then I better start my...
1: (laughs) And that was Mark. And next is Beyonce. Uh, the, you know who Beyonce is. is Beyonce Giselle Norris Carter, an American singer, songwriter, and actress. Born and raised in Houston, Texas. She performed in various singing and dancing competitions as a child and rose to fame in the late 1990s as lead singer of R&B girl group Destiny's Child. Managed by her father, Matthew Norris. She the, sorry, the group became one of the world's best-selling girl groups of all time. There. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay, so I'm um, sure you're familiar with Beyonce and uh, she is the wife of Jay, the popular Jay-Z in hip-hop. If you're into hip-hop at all, she's um, very... Uh, very inspiring girl and I like her work. I mean, like she's always innovative in trying to do the new thing and challenging the status quo of music. I don't know how musical you are, but like I'm very musical. So uh, Beyonce is one of those people that I respect and uh, this is what I picked up from her. Thank you.
5: Everything that I've done, I've worked so hard from until my toes are bleeding and no complaints. So it it takes so much hard work, and I think the more you have to work for something, the more you cherish it. And every time I think about doing something silly or something that's going to be detrimental to my career that I've built, I think about all that time I've sacrificed and my childhood and my family and all the, the people that worked so hard, and I could never disrespect all that I've worked for. I could never disrespect my fans. I could never disrespect the opportunity that I've been given. I'm competitive really with myself. Right. Honestly. Like, I, every time I start an album I go and watch all of my performances and I try to figure out, okay, what is it that I could have done better, or what worked, and Really, my references, I go back to myself and try to better myself. So I'm really tough on me, more so than than anyone else. I'm not a competitive person that walks in thinking about other people and how I can compete with them, or especially not my husband. I always was a creative child, and my parents encouraged it. And I always was doing something Creative was whether it was writing songs or poems or making clothes or dancing, putting on shows, whatever. It was something creative. I think that that's so wonderful for kids. I think it just it gives you so much confidence, and you just feel so wo- so good about yourself, and you feel like you can accomplish anything. And creativity can't be judged, so you just it just is great for self-esteem for kids. I would say to continue to work hard and don't give up on your goals and i know for me like i said i I grew up watching my family struggle and i grew up with a family that was successful but not born successful and i believe with hard work and with a goal and and love and positivity then eventually we're going to be fine i think a star is born a star absolutely i think I know me. I was born to do what I do. It's just too natural. There's certain things that I know no one taught me. No one can teach you. It's just you are and um, I feel like we all are stars. We all have that. We just have to figure out what that thing is that we're supposed to be doing in life and I know that. For me to know exactly what I was born to do at such a young age is why I've been able to do what I do as well as I do it because I've been doing it for a really long time and I'm doing the right thing.
1: And quickly, next up is Aliko Dangote, a Nigerian billionaire who owns the Dangote group, which has interest in commodities. The company operates in Nigeria and other African countries including Benin or Bena if you're French, Ethiopia, Senegal, Cameroon, Ghana, South Africa, Togo, Tanzania, and Zambia. As of February 2017, he has an estimated net worth of $12.5 billion. Dangote is ranked by Forbes magazine as the 67th richest person in the world and the richest in Africa. He peaked on the list as the 23rd richest person in the world in 2014. He supports Saudi Ethiopian billionaire Mohammed Hussein Amodi in 2013 by over $2.6 billion to become the world's richest person of African descent, or basically the richest person, the richest black person. Um, so, uh, I mean, besides being wealthy, I just like his uh, charisma and his... Um, the way he works and the way he talks is a very inspiring human being so yeah this is what i picked up from him
8: and you must be consistent when you try a business and you start you might have hiccups here and there but it does not mean that that business is not going to work there must be challenges in fact what i keep saying is that life without challenges is very very boring so if you have challenges, you just have to know how to work out or how to work around these challenges and you will be successful. Once you are consistent, what business does not like is for you to try something and then once you have one or two problems, now you want to change and move into another business. That doesn't work in business at all. The way that the data is, you, know, uh, you need to have a lot of information at your fingertips so that it will allow you to make decisions and uh, you know, to also take the right you know, decisions. Uh, What uh, I was doing five years ago, if I try to do them without the uh, automation that we have today, it's just not going to happen at all. Well, the problem with some of our younger generation today, they just want to jump and see themselves up there, you know, overnight. Uh, It doesn't really happen. What you need to do is to be very, very focused as a person, and be dedicated to whatever that you are doing. It is not really good for you to now go and try something. Then after a month, you just say, no, it doesn't work. You jump into uh, something
5: else.
8: I think you need to be very, very focused in what you are doing. Once you believe in what you are doing, you see, you should not take your either business or job as something that you must do. Okay, you must take it as it's part of your hobby. If it's part of your hobby, then you do it better. I mean, to be serious, if you want to be the next Dangote, is that uh, you have to have a very big heart. You have to take quite a lot of risk, calculated risk. First of all, you have to make sure that you are honest. You must make sure that you don't destroy the name, you know, because your name is very important. That's the most valuable asset that you have going forward. Because if you don't have a good name, even the banks, doesn't matter how big you are, they're not going to touch you. At all. So you must make sure that you have a very, very good name. And uh, number three, you have to make sure that you say that, look, nothing is impossible. Once you say that, yes, nothing is impossible. It means that you can actually achieve that target.
1: Next up is Steve DeSante. Um, Steve has been on this podcast before and is actually on episode 28 for some of you who haven't listened to it. It's one of my favorite podcasts that I ever recorded, actually. But he is a serial entrepreneur since the age of five. He's the CEO of his own company. Uh, They help people with their money, like what to do with their money. Uh, And today, uh, they're managing about a few billion dollars uh, in his company. So uh, he's also the, uh, the incoming president of Entrepreneur Organization, or EO, in New York. So this is what I picked up from him, which I think it's very important at this stage of my business especially. So I had to put it in. I hope you guys find it helpful as well.
9: The owner or the entrepreneur has a big red S like Superman on their chest. When you open up their shirt, what do you see? A big red S. And that's not so healthy in a business. And what, it, what what this has taught me, I, I learned about it at MIT. I was doing a program up at MIT, an entrepreneurial master's program. And what I learned about it was that nobody's as smart as everybody, meaning we don't have to do this all by ourselves as entrepreneurs and to engage your team. So I have a team. It's a diverse team. It's three men and three ladies, um, me being one of the men. Um, and we do this team consult. And so we present a problem, a challenge, an opportunity. And as we do that discussion, I get back the feedback from the group, and then I read back to them and I say, "Okay, did I get it right? Did I get it right?" And then I select a path to go. That's the most important part is to not to vacillate or get analysis paralysis when you're when you're making decisions in a business. It's all about making decisions. Leaders make decisions. Followers wait for the instructions. Yeah. So, as an entrepreneur, you need to make decisions, right or wrong, but make a decision. But don't do it on your own if you, you know, if you value your team. Um, and I value my team very much.
1: Right. So, for somebody who is at a level where they can probably not afford to have a team to help them, uh, what are the, what would they follow up on? Like the the ways they would take to get a team, or what would they what should they work on to get to the point where they should be able to hire someone or more people?
9: It's a good question. Um, so so for people who are just starting out um, who, or for people who don't have the resources or the team themselves, um, there's, there's a strategy of creating what we call an advisory board. Um, and the advisory board is where you take people who, who you respect their opinion and you bounce ideas off of them. And you do it in a form like a board meeting, but they're non-binding. You don't need to listen to their ideas. You just use them and their life experience in order to guide you through some of the murky waters. And that's probably one of the most effective things that people can do um, when they don't have the resources. But then create the big picture and create what the big picture is going to look like And, you know, what your unique ability is inside your business. And once you start to figure those things out, you're going to realize that it's very ineffective for you to be operating a business and doing secretary work, as well as your professional work, as well as cleaning the bathrooms, because those lower positions are taking you away from the opportunity to make a lot more money doing what you know how to do best. So it's kind of like at that point you're growing a team because you know what, you say to yourself, you know what, I don't like cleaning the bathroom and I don't like doing secretary work and I'm really bad at it. So I'm going to hire somebody part-time and then more success is going to happen and then you're going to be able to have them full-time and then so on and so on.
1: And next up is Peter Thiel. Uh, for some of you who follow me on social media, on Facebook, whether it's on Twitter or on Instagram, You'll be able to tell that I'm a Peter Thiel fan, like I'm always putting up quotes by him because I like he, uh, his way of thinking, like he really thinks differently. And I enjoyed his book called Zero to One, which I recommend you guys check it out. Uh, it's on an audiobook as well. You can get a free uh, audiobook membership for the, for the uh, first 30 days if you use my link on the, on the website. Anyway, Peter is an American businessman, philanthropist, political activist and author uh, the PayPal co-founder and Facebook's first professional investor was ranked number four on the Forbes Midas list in of 2014, with a net worth of 2.2 billion dollars, and number 246 on the Forbes 400 in 2016, with a net worth of 2.7 billion dollars.
10: But yeah, there probably are a lot of people who um, who end up trying to be somewhat fake entrepreneurs, where uh, the goal is to be an entrepreneur. Um, If you ask people, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be an entrepreneur, which I I always think is a somewhat too common, disturbingly somewhat too common. Um, And I think, you know, it's it's, um, it's, it's saying that you want to be an entrepreneur is sort of like saying, I want to be rich or I want to be famous. You You know, nobody in their right mind starts a company for the sake of starting a company. You start a company because there's a very important problem to solve that's not getting solved in large, you know, governmental or nonprofit or for-profit institutions, and that's why you actually need to start a new company. Just starting a company for the sake of doing so is a um, is a really odd thing to do. On an individual level, I think it is always uh, it's always really good if if there's something that you're incredibly passionate about and um, and just sort of are find to be intrinsically interesting. And, uh, and that that people pursue that, um, and so the you know one of the one of the the, the resolutions I came up with um, a number of years ago was to always uh, um, value substance over status, substance over prestige. Um, and uh, you know if, if I sort of was giving my younger self advice on what to what to do or how to how to think about um, your one's one's life, I you know I probably. I think I, you know, um, I, w- I probably would still go to Stanford. Um, you know, I, I might still go to law school. Um, but I'd, I'd ask, I'd ask sort of, I'd ask a lot more questions why why I was doing these things. And I think, uh, I think if I was honest about it, too much of it was driven by um, by prestige and status, and not quite enough about um, really the substance of uh, of trying to learn things. And you know, the, I had sort of this. I sort of just think of it as this sort of crazy rolling quarter-life crisis, and sort of culminated in this uh, in this you know big New York law firm where you know from the outside everybody wanted to get in, from the inside everybody wanted to get out. Um, you know um, after I, I lasted seven months and three days, and after uh, um, and uh, when I when I when I left, one of the people down the hall said, you know it's so reassuring to see you leave, Peter. I had no idea it was possible to escape from Alcatraz, <laughs> which which again uh, and you know and again I. And all you had to do was go through the front door. But our identity, um, people's identities get so wrapped up in um, the things they compete for that it was inconceivable for people to actually do that. And, and then the question was, you know, well, how had I ended up there? Why, why had I not thought about that more? And, uh, and I think it was um, that I had taken too many of these shortcuts of valuing sort of what was prestigious, what was conventional over what I, uh, what I really wanted to do. So I think, I think always substance over status. Already in the time of Shakespeare, the word ape meant both primate and to imitate. And there is something very deep in human nature that is imitative. It's how it's, It has a lot of good things. It's how language gets learned by kids. It's how culture gets transmitted in our society. Uh, but it also can lead to sort of a lot of insane behavior. It can lead to the madness of crowds, to bubbles, to, to sort of mass delusions of one sort or another. And, um, and I think it can... Um, uh, and I think it's, you know, advertising. We always, think of, we always tell ourselves that we're not that uh, prone to this, and I think that's something I'd encourage all of us to rethink. You know, we always think of advertising as something that just afflicts other people, that never afflicts ourselves. Um, I think this is very far from the case. And so, uh, and so the monopoly competition is not just this intellectual failure, it's also this thing where um, you have a tiny door where everyone's trying to rush through, uh, and there may be around the corner a vast and a secret gate that no one's taking and you should always find the secret path and, and and go ahead and take that.
0: It's about kind of the the right mindset for creating a product or company and this is sort of like the Steve Jobs question, do you think you should focus on making something that you
10: believe people want or something that you want? I think you should it should I would focus it should be on something that that uh, that people want you um but uh but I think the the nuance on this is there's always a question whether you're making the judgment or you're taking some survey of people to make the judgment. And uh, and so I'm very much in the Steve Jobs camp of uh, you want to have like this ESP link to the population at large and understand what they want better than they understand themselves. And I I, have, I I take the view that people don't generally know what they want. And so if you ask them surveys, if you do market studies, you will not actually get uh, get the right answer. And so so there is something about sort of this Inspired, um, you know, inspired uh, intuition about what uh, what the world as a whole wants. Um, the A/B testing does not work for products, it's, and the, the problem is the search space is too big. They're too the set of possible things people could build is way too big, and so uh, if you're going to sort of do a uh, an A/B search to try to get to a to a good idea. Uh, that never works. It works. It works in terms of iterating and improving once you have the basic uh, the basic thing down. But it doesn't work to get to the the bit. that I think um, I think um, philanthropy is an area that uh, deserves to also be rethought. And I always like asking these contrarian questions. And so, if the contrarian question in business is what great companies nobody's starting in um, in philanthropy, the contrarian question I think is always something like um, what uh, great cause does nobody want to support. And uh, and so I always. Uh, I, one of the questions I always like to ask is, why is a cause unpopular? I, I don't want to give money to popular causes. I feel those are well enough funded. I think it's the unpopular causes that deserve to get more. And I, I, always, I always would say that you want to make a difference for the better in a way that's not just looking for status, not just uh, in a respectable way, but uh, people should uh, try to be courageous in their philanthropy just as they're courageous when they started a company. Well, it's always it's always dangerous to have absolute rules because Mm. um, you know uh, we we once went uh, at Founders Fund we once went through a list of um, absolute rules and there were about twenty or thirty of them and they add up and eventually you don't look at anything anymore. So there are always good shortcuts. Too many shortcuts somehow goes wrong.
2: Would Facebook or Palantir have made it through those thirty rules? (laughs) I wonder. Uh,
10: you, you 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 always hope so in retrospect. I think I think Facebook Facebook would have made it through regardless because um, you know it was it was just it was at a point when you know a company like Facebook today would probably be valued not at five million but like more like hundred million uh, versus uh, you know having the same metrics when 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 I invested back in two thousand four. Um, you invested at Facebook at a five million dollar valuation. Uh, yes. Yeah. But they had, you know, they had 100,000. They had 100,000 users. It was, it was growing really fast. Um, they only needed money to buy more computers because there was so much demand for the service. So that's actually always a pretty good sign. And you know, I try to get at this uniqueness question through these various contrarian questions. That I think are, are good to ask. One, the, the business one, I always is like, what great company is nobody building? The the, the more intellectual uh, version of this question that I think makes for always a terrific interview question is, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. And this is a shockingly hard question for at least two different reasons. Uh, first reason is that we've been taught that truth is conventional. The truth is just simply what people agree on. Uh, and so it automatically sounds like you have to be really brilliant and it's really hard to discover some new truth that uh, is uh, hit toe, unsuspected. Um, but it's, it's also very difficult because of just the social context in which uh, the, these questions get asked. So if, uh, if you're answering it and the interviewer says, yes, I believe that all along, that's, uh, uh, that, then, that, then that's by definition a bad answer. And a good answer is one that the person asking it does not want, uh, agree with or does not want to hear, and um, and you know, and it requires a certain amount of courage. And we live in a world in which I think courage is an even shorter supply than than genius.
1: And finally, is uh, the man Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, for some of you are familiar with Gary already, he makes very inspiring stuff on the internet. But his professional bio is uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, or was born. On November 14, 1975, is an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times best-selling author, speaker, and internationally recognized uh, internet personality. First known as a leading wine critic who grew his family wine business from $3 million to $60 million, uh, Gary is best known as a digital marketing and social media pioneer at the helm of New York, Bet, Vener Media and VaynerX. X. Uh, Vaynerchuk is an angel investor or advisor to Uber, Bridgebox, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr among others. He's a regular a regular keynote speaker at global entrepreneurship and technology conferences. So, this very last beat which is coming from Gary is something that I usually uh, listen to in the morning to get me started because it's like it's fire you definitely be able to feel it and so that's it about me but if you found this helpful just remember to support the podcast by subscribing and sharing on your social media and the first if you haven't subscribed yet the fir- uh, the first 50 uh, the first so I, was, I said the first 10 subscribers after this podcast, I will send you a book. If you're in South Africa, I can ship it to you. If you're in uh, wherever you are around the world, I can just buy it through Amazon and give it to you. Uh, it will be one of my favorite books, uh, either Zero to One by Peter Thiel or Sapiens, uh, which you, I'm sure you enjoy um, reading it. Anyway. It uh, could be in the form of an audiobook as well. It would be your choice to take. So, finally...
2: Right? I lost a shitload of money when I started doing what I loved. What you do is you position yourself to succeed. So, for example, if you're doing something else and you, and you want to do this thing you love, you do it after hours. You work 9 to 6, you get home, you kiss the dog, and you go to town. Right? I mean, you start building your equity and your brand and whatever you're trying to accomplish after hours. Everybody has time. Stop watching fucking Lost. (laughs) That's a good overheard, right? That was a good overheard. So, you know what I mean? I mean, if you want this, if you want bling bling, if you want to buy the Jets, if you want to do shit, work. That's how you get it. So at 30, I started Wine Library TV. YouTube blows up. At 31, I'm on Conan O'Brien, Ellen. There's articles being written about me. Now they're writing that the business grew from three to $60 million in sales. I'm becoming this guy. I got so many goddamn emails from friends in high school during that period when I was showing up in all these magazines and TV shows. And every single one of them was like, hey Gary, you remember me from high school? Oh my God, you're so lucky. I wrote back every single one of them and said, let me just clarify one thing. I'm not lucky, I worked. I worked every goddamn weekend and every holiday since I was 14 years old. So you can keep that luck shit in your pocket. So it's early Monday morning and I've been wanting to make a Monday morning video for a long time and finally DRock, we're doing it. So real quick, This is just a rant, very simple, and something that I want you to pass on or watch every Monday morning because the level of complaining is unacceptable. Look, what if I told you this was the last Monday morning of your life? What if I told you you die this week? Would you complain about your crap job or that test you don't want to take? I doubt it. You would go much higher level thinking. Well, that's really what it takes. It takes understanding that if you're not pumped right now, if you're begrudging what you're about to do, if you're, if you're not looking forward to it, look, I respect practicality. You gotta go through school because your parents want to. You gotta pay your rent. You got student loans. I get it. But please recognize the world we're living in. We're living in a world where there's so much more opportunity. This internet thing created way more opportunity for all of us. Way more. I mean, look, you might not even be alive. Like, your mom and dad could have had sex like three minutes later and you wouldn't even exist and you're complaining. You could have ended up being a bus, a tree. I just don't get the mentality of being head down sad on a Monday morning. I'm gonna make Monday morning my bitch. I'm gonna make you Saturday Monday morning. That's what I want to do every morning and that's what I want from you. Please, take a step back and think about how awesome it actually is. And then, recognize that you can attack the world in a totally different way because you were lucky enough to be born during this era. Fuck you, Monday.